Are you feeling a little down seeing nothing but sad stories and bad news this summer? Are you looking for some silver lining to environmental news to perk your mood up? Stay tuned right here to Terra Informa. From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. My name is Andrea Miller. And I'm Hannah Cunningham. And we'll be your hosts for the next half hour of positive environmental news and stories. Before we start our episode, we would like to acknowledge that we are situated on Treaty 6, the historic and present territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples that live and gather here. As you listen to this episode, we hope you think about the relationship between yourself, the environment, and the people who call this place home. Listening to and learning about the news is one thing, but we hope you take some time to connect with and amplify the stories happening in your local community. This summer, our news roundups have covered some pretty dire stories, like legislation that challenges environmental protests, environmental regulations being lessened, and coal projects being approved. It's enough to leave you feeling down in an already pretty difficult year. So this week, we're flipping the script. We decided to cover some of the positive news stories that we've seen this summer. We'll take a look at a grid-scale battery storage project in southern Alberta, before turning to the north to look at new renewable projects that are eliminating diesel reliance for remote communities. We'll hear about citizens taking action against the government of Alberta for decisions about parks in the province. And we'll finish our good news episode at the Solidarity and Prayer Camp Against Police Violence right here in Amiskwichi. First up, here's Elizabeth Dowdell talking about the Wind Charger Energy Storage Project. On March 31, 2020, power company TransAlta began construction on Alberta's first grid-scale battery energy storage project, known as Wind Charger. After a short delay due to health and safety precautions related to COVID, the facility is expected to begin operating this August. Located in southern Alberta, Wind Charger is situated next to Transalta's Summerview Wind Farm substation in the municipal district of Pincher Creek. You might have heard of Pincher Creek before, as it has become well known for its excellent wind resources and multiple wind energy developments. Approved by the Alberta Utilities Commission in November of 2019, Wind Charger is valued at $22.7 million and received just over $11 million of funding from Emissions Reductions Alberta, an investment entity created by the Government of Alberta in 2009 through the Climate Change and Emissions Management Act. About the size of a soccer field, the new Wind Charger project uses lithium-ion megapack battery technology developed by Tesla. The battery facility will have a nameplate capacity of 10 megawatts with a total storage capacity of 20 megawatt hours or 20,000 kilowatt hours. 
for perspective, an average household in Alberta consumes around 7,200 kilowatt hours of electricity per year, meaning this battery could provide electricity to about three households for a full year on a single charge. However, as part of the grid or front of the meter battery storage, this facility will continually be charging, storing, and sending renewable energy into the Alberta electricity market, firming up and smoothing out the delivery of renewables across the province. Now, Alberta is well known for fossil fuel energy production, but did you know Transalta, the company behind WindCharger, built the first Alberta hydro facility in 1911, and it's still working? This Alberta-born energy company has a vision to be a leader in clean electricity. Can you believe it? And they're achieving this goal in Canada through investment in wind and hydro, as well as converting their existing coal plants to gas or sending others into early retirement. At the same time Project Windcharger comes online, Transalta will be shutting down its Sundance 3 coal power plant with the company citing future market conditions. So I'm not an economist, and I don't know exactly what future market conditions means, but I do know that battery storage technology is one innovation that may solve the issue of intermittent supply associated with wind and solar energy, making the firm supply of fuels like coal much less of a competitive edge in the electricity market. And this trend towards battery storage is a global one. A briefing report from the International Renewable Energy Agency, or IRENA, estimates worldwide battery storage capacity at 10 gigawatts in 2017, and suggests capacity will just continue to grow. And for good reason. According to IRENA, battery storage has many benefits for different users. From a system operator perspective, grid-scale storage can improve frequency regulation and allow for flexible ramping. This means the system operator is able to respond faster to changes in supply and demand, operate power plants more efficiently by not wasting energy on standby, while at the same time not having to ramp production down and up with changes in renewable generation, like on a sunny morning or after sunset. Battery storage is also ideal for black start conditions. When a power failure has taken place and a plant would usually use a diesel generator to get back online. From an investment perspective, like that of a municipal or provincial utility provider, battery storage helps energy shifting, capacity investment deferral, and congestion relief. This means batteries can replace overbuilding of infrastructure, like new plants and transmission lines, to meet regular but short windows of overproduction or peak demand. Basically, batteries can deliver that extra bit of energy needed during the evening or during a heat wave or a deep freeze. For generators like Transalta, Batteries reduce renewable energy curtailment and firm up capacity. This means excess clean renewable energy production can be stored instead of going generated but undelivered, and renewable energy can still be delivered to the grid during periods when the resource is low, like at night or when the wind isn't blowing. There are also obvious benefits for mini grids, like those in remote or island communities, but I'll let Sonic tell you more about that in the next story. Basically, battery storage makes renewable energy flexible, efficient, and able to meet many of the challenges facing our modern energy systems. Yet, for grid-scale battery storage projects to be successful, 
there are some necessary conditions. Again, according to IRENA, there are three key needs that must be met to promote energy storage. One is reduced upfront investment costs that close the economic viability gap. Two is a conducive regulatory framework that values energy storage. And three are pilot projects and a knowledge dissemination. Wind Charger is exciting because it ticks off all these boxes. It demonstrates a made in Alberta pilot project and knowledge base, along with economic viability through funding from the Emissions Reductions Alberta under the Climate Change and Emissions Management Act. But WindCharger wasn't the only storage project to receive funding under this act. There were seven applications, and four of those facilities proposed startup dates in 2020, 2021. So in 2019, this pushed the Alberta energy system operator to create an energy roadmap, spelling out the regulatory and policy framework to integrate storage into our electricity grid. In a March 2020 update to that roadmap, there are 16 storage projects that have been proposed, with five of those expecting 2020 in-service dates. So while WindCharger will be the first renewable battery storage facility to come online in Alberta, it sounds like there will be several more to come. And that is very good news indeed. Thanks for the update, Elizabeth. Let's keep talking about renewables in Canada. Here's Sonic Patel talking about new renewable developments powering remote communities. All across Canada, particularly in our north, there are remote communities, often indigenous, that are not connected to a grid that provides them with power. This means that these communities often rely on diesel generators to provide them with heat and electricity. This is a big environmental problem. First, because diesel is a fossil fuel and produces greenhouse gases when it is burnt, contributing to climate change. Diesel also contributes to air pollution, creating a local health and ecosystem hazard. But diesel power isn't the only option for these communities. Many of these communities can harness natural resources to create renewable energy to power their homes and businesses, saving money on the amount of diesel that needs to be transported in and creating a non-carbon emitting source of power. And recently, some of these communities are taking advantage of these opportunities. According to a recent report by the Pemina Institute, renewable energy projects nearly doubled across remote communities from 2015 to now. Much of these gains have been made by solar, as solar capacity has increased more than 11-fold in five years. Alongside renewable development, other efforts to reduce diesel consumption include increased energy efficiency methods, using renewable energy for heating, and connecting these communities to a grid system. Because of these efforts, remote communities in Canada have reduced diesel use by 12 million liters per year. Ontario currently has the most renewable electricity generation in remote communities, followed by the Northwest Territories and British Columbia. Much of the push to develop renewable energy and other diesel reduction systems has been supported by federal and provincial-slash-territorial funding programs. For example, British Columbia funds small-scale renewable projects for remote communities. Renewable electricity has resulted in a diesel savings of 3.5 million liters per year. 
Renewable energy use for heating accounts for a further 4.1 million liters per year diverted, and has also seen a big uptake since 2015. Some communities have adopted a technology called combined heat and power, whose name is pretty self-explanatory. One example of remote renewable projects is the Old Crow Solar Array. The Vuntut Gwich'in First Nation is developing the solar project, with a capacity of 900 kilowatts and battery storage for 350 megawatt hours, the largest solar project in the Yukon. The project is challenged by the very high latitude of the community, 400 kilometers north of Whitehorse and within the Arctic Circle, and permafrost that makes engineering and development challenging. Despite these challenges, the community has worked with private partners to design and develop the project, with joint funding from national and territorial governments. The project has been designed to capitalize on the long summer days in the north, and accounts for the challenges of permafrost. While the COVID pandemic means that the project will not be fully functional until Phase 3 is completed next year, Phase 1 is expected to be online by the end of this summer. And once the project is fully completed, the community expects that the solar energy generated will reduce diesel fuel use by 189,000 liters a year. This also means that the community can expect the project to save them as much as a quarter of a million dollars a year, the high cost of flying diesel so far north, as the community is not accessible by road. This cost savings is in addition to the revenue that the project would generate. The project is wholly owned by the Vuntun Gwich'in First Nation, making the project an asset to the local community and leading to the community having a big influence on the design, as well as being able to contribute local knowledge to support development. According to project documents, the motivation and design for Old Crow Solar Array was influenced by desires of self-reliance and autonomy in the community, building capacity from working on the project, and a desire to live more sustainably, reducing greenhouse gas emissions and human health impacts. Respect is also given to the wildlife and people that traditionally have used the site of the project for berry picking, an activity that is still able to occur due to the project design. This project is described as an innovative application of technology to traditional values. The Old Crow Project is an example of the types of renewable projects that are starting to dot the Canadian landscape and alleviate the use of diesel in these remote communities. I'd love to leave this story here, having described great efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in our remote communities. But unfortunately, despite a major uptake in renewable energy, more needs to be done. Efforts have reduced diesel use by 12 million liters per year. But in 2020, diesel use is 682 million liters per year. Most of that is for heat, while nearly a third is for electricity. Total diesel use has actually risen since 2015, which can partially be attributed to population growth. Canada has a national target to eliminate diesel power generation by 2030, as part of larger efforts for the country to be carbon neutral by 2050. If we want to get even close to meeting these targets, we have a long way to go. While these renewable projects, including Old Crow Solar, are a step in the right direction, we need a huge uptake of renewable projects in remote communities to completely displace diesel use. 
but as we saw from the old Crow project, these developments are technically achievable, they can respect and improve environmental conditions, and provide huge economic and social benefits to communities, respecting indigenous values and traditions. This has been Sonic Patel, thanks for listening. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Terra Informa, a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, recorded in Treaty 6 territory in so-called Edmonton, Alberta. In this episode, we're rounding up some of the positive environmental news stories from the past couple of months. That was Sonic Patel talking about renewable energy displacing diesel generation in Canada's remote communities. Now, let's switch over to me, Hannah Cunningham, to talk about public protest over planned changes to Alberta's provincial parks. Back in March, the United Conservative Party announced that they had plans to fully or partially close 20 provincial parks and turn over another 164 parks to third-party managers. For the parks which no third-party managers can be found, they are to lose park status and be reverted to vacant public land status, meaning that they could be susceptible to being used for industrial activity or agricultural sale. The UCP's rationale for these changes is that it will allow them to cut $5 million from the Alberta Parks budget by offloading these, quote, underutilized, end quote, areas. In a news release from July 23rd, the Alberta chapters of the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, or CPAWS, announced that they had details about these changes that came from internal government documents obtained through a Freedom of Information and Privacy request. According to Katie Morrison, Conservation Director for the Southern Alberta Chapter of CPAWS, quote, These documents highlight the fact that the Minister of Environment and Parks and the Government of Alberta have not been transparent about their rationale for dismantling our park system. They have also communicated misleading information regarding their intent for the future of our park system, end quote. In these released documents, Environment Minister Jason Nixon apparently told staff that, despite advice from senior government staffers that at least two rounds of public consultation should be done for this kind of decision, Nixon told his staff that there would be no public input for the changes that are planned for Alberta's parks. The internal government documents also revealed that the Environment Minister and his staff maybe going back on another promise to Albertans. Nixon and his staff claimed that, quote, we are not selling any crown or public land, period, end quote. But the release documents show that parks within the white zone or settled area of the province were being considered for sale once their park status was removed. This isn't the first time that Nixon has been involved with the sale of environmentally significant land. You might remember headlines from back in April where a piece of unprotected native grassland was sold by Nixon's Department for Potato Farming. So you might be wondering what this story is doing in our positive news episode. Terra Informers pitched this story for this episode because the public outcry against these decisions made by the UCP kind of swings this story in a positive direction. Albertans love to spend time outdoors, whether that's camping, hiking, or recreating in other ways. A public opinion survey done by CPAWS and Ledger, a Canadian-owned market and research analytics company, surveyed just over 1,000 Albertans in March of this year. According to the results of the survey, almost 7 out of 10 Albertans oppose the closure or removal of these parks, 
across demographics like whether they lived in urban or rural areas, gender, age, and income level. The survey also stated that more than half of the Albertans sampled opposed the management of the existing parks being transferred to third parties. In response to these plans, the NDP started a Don't Go Breaking My Parks campaign, and over 10,000 Albertans have signed the campaign's petition to save Alberta parks. Petitions on other websites like leadnow.ca have over 50,000 signatures. Artists have banded together to host the Art for Alberta Parks event, where art pieces portraying the at-risk parks could be bought with all proceeds going towards the Northern Alberta chapter of CPAWS. Letters have been written to MLAs and managers of outdoor stores like Edmonton's Trek and Trail, the Campers Village in Calgary, and the Fish and Hole have written to Premier Jason Kenney to urge him to reverse this decision. We at Terranforma are impressed with your attitude, Alberta. During a time where it's so easy to feel helpless, it's important to remember that public participation in governance is powerful. Taking action, no matter how small the effort, can feel really good when everything happening in the world feels overwhelming. Check out our website at terrainforma.ca for some links to some actions you can take to help protect Alberta's park. Thanks, Hannah. Finally, let's hear from Terra Informer Curtis Blandy on a solidarity relief and prayer camp against police violence that has become an incredible example of community. I'm Curtis Blandy, and you're listening to Terra Informa. Camp Pekawewin is not a protest camp. It is an anti-police violence, prayer, and relief camp. It is taking a harm reduction approach for people experiencing homelessness and people who sleep rough. Pekawewin is led by Indigenous, Two-Spirit, women, and femme folks working in solidarity with Black, LGBTQ2S+, and settler allies. Pekawewin is Cree for coming home. It was set up by frontline workers and Indigenous-led community organizations before sunrise on July 24th, 2020, in the Rossdale area of Edmonton, Alberta. Camp Pekawewin provides food, shelter, water, harm reduction, and other resources to unhoused and at-risk people who the government has ignored before and during the COVID-19 pandemic. The Edmonton Expo Center has been used as a drop-in shelter for people who are experiencing homelessness. But as of July 31st, those 400 to 600 people were left to figure out their housing situation on their own. With the COVID-19 pandemic not slowing down anytime soon, the existing shelters in Edmonton already have a decreased number of beds for people to utilize. The camp's demands are broad, but they summarize the ways in which these communities have been continuously marginalized. They are to divest $39 million from the Edmonton area law enforcement, an end to racialized cop violence against people with lived experiences of homelessness. That means an end to tent slashing, pepper spraying, destruction, and theft of people's property and only dwellings. The City of Edmonton and Edmonton Area Law Enforcement to follow the recommendations of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Frontline workers and those with lived experiences of homelessness to desist from forcible displacement and removal of their only dwellings. 
an accessible emergency fund for frontline workers and communities with lived experiences of homelessness, dismantling of racist bylaws that perpetually erode the security, safety, and dignity of people with no fixed address and communities with lived experiences of homelessness, recognize the legal protections against unreasonable search and seizure by the state for houseless people and their encampments under Section 8 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, they demand encampments be legitimately recognized as property and protected as homes. Additionally, they demand an honoring of inherent Aboriginal title and treaty rights for many unhoused Indigenous peoples to occupy their territories within the urban center. More transitional supports, including accessible 24-7 drop-in space, more public washrooms, hand-washing and hygiene facilities for community members living rough. And lastly, free transit. People have the right to move between spaces. Among other problematic behavior, the Edmonton Police Service has an ongoing history of slashing tents of people experiencing homelessness or pepper spraying the inside along with their belongings, leaving them with nothing when they already struggle to acquire the supplies they need to survive. This is a big part of the camp's demand to divest from the Edmonton Police Service and put that money toward community services that can help these community members rather than continuously contributing to the marginalization and systematic oppression of people sleeping rough or experiencing homelessness. On a lighter note, the sense of community is beautiful and overwhelming on site, with the community members creating art from donations and interacting with volunteers and coordinators. They know it is a space free of judgment and full of like-minded individuals who are there as a source of support. The site features a kitchen, a donation site, a harm reduction and first aid site, a Treaty 6 outreach tent, a sacred fire kept going by First Nations elders next to a teepee used for prayer, a community-run library with Wi-Fi, as well as 197 tents that are effectively housing about 500 community members. Camp Pekawewin has so many contributors, but a few of note are Beaver Hills Warriors, who lead the camp, Treaty 6 Outreach, the Crazy Indian Brotherhood, and BLMYEG. There are so many ways to support Camp Pekawewin. You can donate by making an e-transfer to blmyeg at gmail.com with the note Pekawewin, spelled P-E-K-I-W-E-W-I-N. You could pick up supplies the community members are always in need of, some of which are cigarettes, bus passes, snack food, blankets, sleeping mats, sleeping bags, tarps, and rain gear. The community member's happiness is just one Costco trip away. You could also donate your time. To get involved, email pekawayoinvolunteers at gmail.com and tell them about yourself and your skills. Medically trained individuals are always in high demand. Thanks, Curtis. And with that story, we unfortunately have reached the end of our August news roundup. Following environmental news can be disheartening, believe us. It seems like everywhere you look, things are taking a turn for the worse. It's easy to feel burnt out and overwhelmed. But for our own sakes, it's important to remember the progress that we have made before turning our attention 
to the problems we still have to face. So dear listeners, let's take a moment to acknowledge all that we've been able to achieve so far. And after that, let's get to work. You've been listening to Terra Informa, a production of CJSR 88.5 FM. All of our content is created by a team of volunteers. If you like what you heard, check out our website, terrainforma.ca, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Terra Informa. We've been your hosts, Andrea Miller and Hannah Cunningham. Catch you next week, right here on Terra Informa.